0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Y'all think I'm going to start in the dark. You're wrong. I ain't going to do it. Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you this morning. So thankful you're here. If it's your first time with us, we're a we're finishing, well, we're about halfway through the book of Judges. That's where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I don't know, if, if, if you're new here, you might think, boy, how in the world is that going to work out? I assure you, I believe when the Lord says His word never returns void, He means it. And He's got something for all of us today. But we do have a nice bite of Scripture today. I know this much, when you leave the, the building today, you won't be able to say, "You know, I really just wish they'd use the Bible more. Um, we're going to get into a lot of text today. We're going to be in Judges chapter 8 and 9. And the title of this sermon, and this, one, this one's kind of a tricky one, to be honest with you, for us to wrestle with. And the title is, When Spoils Spoil Us. And the idea of this is, we don't use that word spoils so much, but I think most of you understand it. This is the idea of like spoils of war or like the spoils that you get uh, if you were pirating or something like that. You know, This is this idea of the reward for your success, the, the things you receive for your, for your labors or, or your, your, your victories. And so the bad thing is, the difficult thing is that these success often is just as difficult, if not more difficult, than the low valleys. And that's where we're going to spend some time today. That's what these two chapters really speak to. What about the season of plenty? What about the season of prosperity? We we complain and we, we struggle through seasons of poverty, but what about prosperity? I ask you this question, which do you think is potentially most harmful to your soul? Is it poverty or is it prosperity? Uh, the answer to that may shock you, Uh, If you've been through both of those seasons, you may already know this, that both of them are difficult in very different ways. uh, And one of them sometimes can be more difficult. In fact, many would argue, many of the people I was studying this week would argue that prosperity is actually the more difficult road. Jesus certainly thought that way. Here's what it says in Proverbs, however. It says, I don't want either, basically. Proverbs 30, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For I gro- when I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? But if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Both are very dangerous places to be in. And maybe you showed up today and you're in one of those two places. It's very difficult. I pray you call on the Lord, whether you're on the mountain or in the valley, because he is there and he is, is, is hungry and jealous for your affection and you might be thinking, well, I'm not sure. I, between the two, I'd much rather the test of prosperity than the test of poverty. And I think that's be like 99% of you in the room. But some of you have truly been tested with wealth and found that it was a hard place for you. A very difficult place and a place that Jesus mentions this way. He says in Mark chapter 10, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, that's about as strong as you can put it. What does he mean by that? Does that mean wealthy people are just not Christians? No. It does, however, mean if you've got a lot, if you've been successful, it is very easy for you to say, I am enough, rather than you are enough. And that's the difficulty that Gideon, who we're following his story right now, Gideon gets in this place and he fails. He fails here. Wealth and prosperity tempt us to forget God. Gideon's story began kind of fearful, kind of broken, does pretty good in the middle, finishes terrible. He's got bookends of really not greatness. <laughs> and the good thing about that story is it reminds us of us, that of the heroes of the faith, and he was heroic in a, for a piece of his life, it's good to also see that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat stuff. For me, th- those realities make the Bible more real to me. That, that it doesn't, if it was trying to be a fake, if it was trying to be a fraud, it wouldn't mention some of the just terrible things that our heroes do. There's only one hero in this book that gets it right, and it's Jesus. And we're longing for him. The people were longing for him in the book of Judges, we have it. And we can look at this story through the, the lens of Christ Jesus. So let's dig in. We're going to be in Judges 8 and 9 today. The Lord gave incredible victory to Gideon. He's going to give him some more as we start chapter 8. But what we're going to find out is that the spoils of war begin to spoil Gideon's and the people of Israel's relationship with God and with each other. And they didn't know how to handle God's blessings. They let these victories spoil their hearts. And So I pray today we're going to see a few warning signs That success might be spoiling the heart. The text is going to give us three really clear warning signs. So let's dig in. We're going to take it in bites because it is a nice, healthy sum. This might be, if it's your first time with us, this might be the longest amount of of text I've ever read as a pastor. I'm in my eighth year. So welcome. (laughs) Judges chapter 8. We're going to do 1 through 21 to begin. Then the the men of Ephraim said to him, him is Gideon here, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebizur? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Goodness. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the very same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jagbaha and attacked the army, for the army had felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna, they fled. And he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. And he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heras. And he captured a young man of Sukkoth. This is where the story gets weird. Well, maybe it's already been weird to you, but it gets weirder. He questioned him and he wrote down... For him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and bri- briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, And killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so they were. So were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid. Because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmona said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmona. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. All right. (laughs) Good luck, Jonathan. What are you going to do with that? How's that going to help us in the modern day? Here's what I see in just this first piece of the story. The first warning sign. That success is spoiling Gideon's heart and may be something you're struggling with. A warning sign. Seeking success over seeking the Lord. Seeking success over the seeking the Lord. Something has transitioned now for Gideon. If you go back and read 7, if you're with us on that journey, you saw a Gideon who was fearful, yes, but he was obedient to the Lord. When the Lord said, hey, take only 300 of your 30,000 or so men, he obeyed. He was scared, but he obeyed. When the Lord said, hey, go down and do this crazy thing. I want you to break pots and shine lights and blow trumpets. Gideon was like, that makes no sense to me, but let's do it. He's following the Lord. Have you seen the Lord tell Gideon to do anything here? No. Gideon's on his own. Most commentators say he's on a, he's on a vengeance course now. He is now seeking the revenge of his actual family. When he says, those are my brothers, the sons of my mother. The reason he's chasing Zeba and Zalmona half across the known world here is because... These men killed his real family, and he wants vengeance. Now, for whatever reason, the Lord still blesses him because still in this story, 300 men defeat 15,000. That's insane. That's incredible. And yet, Gideon is starting to do some things here that seem to be based on his own spirit, based on his own will. He's no longer seeking so much God's will. He's not in prayer. He's not seeking the counsel of others. He's not. We don't see the Lord speaking at all here. Now, the Lord takes care of him through this journey. And this is a scary thought, Christian. Sometimes the Lord will still give you success in the very place where he didn't even send you. Just to see what will happen, I guess. To test us even in that. You go kicking doors down and find your way through them. Oh, this is a great job, a job that God never called you to do, and yet you've somehow landed it. And then a few years go by and you go, this is awful. And you talk to the Lord, can you help me with this job? No, because I didn't tell you to do that. But I'm glad you finally caught up. Here's Gideon chasing men and doing something else that is hard to say is correct. The men of Sukkoth and the men of Penuel, these are Israelites. These are people of God. Now, they respond to Gideon poorly. They should have been generous. They should have offered him bread. And his response to Sukkoth may even be justified. He comes back and he, he whips him with switches. I used to get butt whoopings as a kid with switches. It's not great, but you don't die. All right. Maybe they did deserve that, the elders of Sukkoth. I'm like, okay, maybe that's justified. I could see that. And then Penuel, he was supposed to tear down the tower, but more than that, he killed the men of the city. How do you justify that? That seems like his whole vengeance tour is getting extreme. He is seeking his own success. He is seeking to make his own name great. He says, as the Lord lives, he's beginning to make oaths. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for my family. Worldly sorrow, my friends, is not true repentance. Worldly sorrow, God wants us to confess and turn from it back to him. Not constantly seek our own. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Rather than constantly seeking your own will, constantly seeking success. I find that the Lord just has difficulty there. He has difficulty answering your prayers because He has a different desire for you. In fact, this, this really speaks to our prayer life so much in that what we're praying for isn't so much that God would change His mind because He's immutable. What we're really praying for is that He would change us and that we would begin to have a will that aligns with His will. That the things we desire are the things He desires for us rather than, God, would you do the things I want, please? Sometimes that is not what seems best for us, what God does for us. But in the end, he has a story and glorifies himself through it. And here he's doing something with Gideon that's kind of amazing. He allows Gideon success, even in the place where it doesn't seem Gideon's following him anymore. He's seeking his own will. Now, here's a couple of symptoms. I want to give you a couple of symptoms to monitor in yourself. More of a modern-day kind of symptoms of, am I struggling Am I struggling with seeking my own success rather than the Lord's? Here's the number one, and this one's probably the most important. My prayer has become infrequent. I'm more and more just kind of, I think I can handle this. i more and more just follow my will. I wake up, I do my day, I do what I think. Jonathan leads Jonathan's life. I become infrequent in prayer. I begin to no longer seek the counsel of others. Because they're not so smart. I'm smarter than they are. Or maybe you don't say that out loud, but in your heart you're like, I don't really want to. I know there's some people in my life, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's someone that clearly loves you and you know they've they've typically given you good advice in the past, but in the end you really don't even want to hear it because you know what they might say. And you don't want to do that. You begin to not seek godly counsel. You begin to get angry about results. It's not going the way I intended. I'm getting angry and angry and frustrated. Then I begin to control. In frequent prayer, not seeking counsel, anger over results, and then controlling. So then I try, then even my kids, when they do something, they make a little mess over here. Ugh, I can't control even my own household. I'm saying that one out of all my own guilt. Gideon was small and weak. The story of chapters 6 and 7 was this little Gideon. He's afraid. He's threshing wheat, hiding from the the battle because he's a terrified young man. He was fearful and weak, and then God does something miraculous through him. And then when he begins to get successful, he grew too strong for God, begins to forget God. My friends, this is probably a hard piece of information, but I I would say this to you. Beware your strengths more than your weaknesses. Be more leery of the things you're great at then you are the things you're terrible at because those are the places where you can become self-dependent so easily. Say, this, I got this, God, don't worry. Now, those are the very places, God, don't let me get up and preach today out of my own strength. Yeah, I've got some talent there. Some think so, but let me not. Boy, those are the sermons that bomb. Some of you have been here for those sermons where I got up and like, I'm ready today. I am ready to preach. No, I'm, it's better for me to get up and say, I don't, I don't know what you're doing with this. I'm in Judges chapter 8 and 9, God. What are you going to do? Those are, the, those are the best ones where I, I don't have it together. Those are the best moments in your life where you're totally dependent on God. I don't know how we're going to do this, Lord, but I trust you. Lead. Let's keep reading. This is where the story gets so sad for Gideon. Verses 22 thirty-five, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now Gideon says something kind of great here. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, Gideon, get it. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, though. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had... Golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. This is graphic stuff, I know. They're taking the earrings off off all these thousands of dead men. This is weird stuff, okay. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Just so you know, that's somewhere around 75 pounds of gold. In modern-day money, that's close to $2 million dollars. Talk about a get-rich scheme. That's a good one. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels, and Gideon does something terrible. He made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel another name for Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons. Goodness. His own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he, named his, he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done. To Israel. Goodness gracious. They're whoring after gods. What is going on? Here's the second thing the second warning sign. You begin to love worldly wealth over loving God. Loving worldly wealth over loving God. Gideon says the exact right thing, but he does not live out what he said. I'm not going to rule over you. My sons aren't going to rule over you. The Lord rules over you. Ha ha. But let me get a whole bunch of gold and let me take a whole bunch of wives and let me name my son Abimelech, which means my father is the king. Gideon, I'm confused. Did you mean what you said? It does not appear so. Okay, I'm not officially the king, but I'm going to live like it. For 40 years, I'm going to make 70 sons. That's what the Bible records. Let's just think for a second. Unless the man was absolutely the Y chromosome master, he had a lot more children than this. He's got hundreds of children probably. How do you afford such things? Well, with a great plunder of gold. And the worst piece of the story is he takes this gold and he makes an ephod. Now an ephod is is a priestly garment meant to be worn by the Levite priests. Right now the tabernacle is in Shiloh, which is in Ephraim. This is where the people are supposed to go and worship, and the Levite priests wear this thing. And it's part of what God has instructed them to do. They didn't make this stuff up. God told them how to worship. I want you to worship me like this. And for whatever reason, Gideon says, I'm going to make a new place of worship. I'm going to make, I'm going to start a whole, at the house in Ophrah, I'm going to make my own ephod. And guess what? It's better than that ephod. Mine's made of gold, completely of gold. Now, the, the ephod in Shiloh was magnificent the way God ordained it, but magnificent in the sense that it was never meant to steal glory. You know, God purposely makes a lot of these things in the tabernacle humble. Why? So that He would be glorified, not the stuff. Now, I can make some notes about that just in modern church. I could go a long time just to talk about that for a second. I want y'all to understand something. Our musicians up here, they're good, but I never want us to get to the place where this is a place where you come and go, man, my worship team, they ought to be paid, man. Man, this is the best band ever. I want us to be great. Why? Because we love Jesus and because we want to glorify him with the best that we have. Not so that you will go, (laughs) I don't care for your praise. I'm sorry. I love you. If he's not happy... I'm not happy. If he's not clapping, what am I doing up here? And we get this so wrong in church. And there's times that I look at what we have and I go, God, this isn't this is what I thought it would look like. I thought, you know, I thought the building would be like this. And this is a good reminder again today. Maybe I needed to see this again and just look at it all over again. You know, God has a he has the the, the, the map for how to worship. And let's just honor him in the way he desires. He wants his word preached. He wants songs and worship. And he wants, most importantly, and the thing that it all ties to, is a broken and contrite heart. He wants us to come. God, I love you. I'm totally dependent on you. I'm a broken man without you. I need you desperately. I want my prayers to be out of delight and desperation, not out of duty. I want my worship to be out of delight and desperation, not out of duty. That's what he desires for us. Gideon has decided, I'm going to make a new place of worship. I'm going to disobey God here. Now, he doesn't. this isn't an idol necessarily. He has just made a new false place of worship. And the people, it says, hoard after it, which means they begin to prostitute themselves. This is the idea that I no longer am... <laughs> I'm doing the thing I should do with my spouse which here is this weird relationship of like my my the groom is Christ my 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 love for God is like this wedding relationship and I should be going to Shiloh where it's correct instead I'm going to Ophrah where there's this amazing golden ephod Maybe Gideon does this because there seems to be a tension between him and the tribe of Ephraim and that's where that's where Shiloh's at and he's trying to say you know what I got a new place forget Ephraim you can come over here and it becomes a snare to him and his kids. The love of worldly wealth, the desire for success. Gideon takes all of this and makes all these wonderful things, makes all these sons, and you know what he does? He sets up chapter 9. Y'all are about to hear chapter 9 and go, what is that even in the Bible for? Oh, my good Lord. It's all all a setup. It's a legacy that Gideon leaves. He he starts kind of rough. He does okay in the middle, and he finishes terrible. Church, I got news for you. I've made mistakes all along the journey, but good Lord, please let me finish well, because it's all of naught if not if I don't finish well. Let me continue to chase the Lord in all of my life. He says, "Be warned." This is what Paul writes about being warned: the desire to be rich can be such a snare. He writes to Timothy, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice what he says. He's repeating what Jesus said. And people get this wrong all the time. Jesus did not say that money is the root of all evil. He never said that. Neither does the apostles. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Look, God has in his in his infinite knowledge and his and his infinite power he may give some of you a lot more than me some less and he does this for his own purpose and some of you will be very wealthy perhaps in, in 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 some eyes but the question is how are you using it what is what is it causing in your life it's not that that those things are evil in themselves but when you begin to love them and seek them above the lord that's such danger there this is what Jesus says in Matthew 6: "Noah can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money." Imagine if Jesus could see us now. Wow, the first century believers, they have nothing on us. I got out of the shower this morning and thought to myself, "Wow, I just took a hot shower. That's something people haven't experienced for most of, most of human history. I just go, huh, I don't know how this stuff works. I like a good hot shower, though. Wow, the wealth. And we take that stuff for granted. I didn't realize how important a kitchen sink was until I didn't have one church for about five, six months. Kitchen sink's the greatest invention of all time. Maybe the dishwasher's a close second. Those people, were they, they love Jesus. There's no getting around it. They must have. Just wonderful inventions. All of this is, I've been to Uganda. I've been to some other places and seen how blessed we truly are. And we take it all for granted. Pastor J.D. Greer says this, and I think he's really right. Christians most often pass the test of adversity. It is the test of prosperity we fail. Gideon declined this big temptation to be king. He declined it. But he fell for the smaller one. Golden earrings. (laughs) Be careful that the love of money doesn't ensnare you and your family. Generosity, my friends, can be such a great antidote to greed. Generosity. With your time, your talent, your treasure. Loving and depending on God, we are set free from the snare of money. All right, now for my big read. Y'all ready? Come on. Come on now. My Bible has got, like, this is a whole page and a half. Here we go. Woohoo! This stuff's great though. It's not like, hey, some of you were here with me when I preached what some call the unpreachable chapter in the book of Nehemiah. That one almost hurt me. A lot of names in there. Chapter 9, Abimelech's Conspiracy. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam uh, rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also, I am your bone and your flesh. Come on. And his mother's relatives, they spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, well, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belbareth, out of that idolatrous house. With which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, hallelujah, who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerobel, seventy men on one stone. Wow. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak at the pillar. Shechem. Here in Shechem, I want to pause for a second. Shechem is the place where the people renewed their vows to the covenant God, to Yahweh under Joshua. They buried under this very oak, the book of the law, which they committed to, they covenanted to. In that same place, they coronate this fool. What? Joshua's bones are buried here. Sad. It's so sad. It only takes a couple of generations for people to just totally mess up the whole thing. Doesn't take long. Verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and he cried aloud, and he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, "Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees, then they said to the fig tree, Hey, you come and rule and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees then said to the vine, You come and you reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, bramble would be like a thorn bush. You come and you rule over us, you reign over us. And the bramble, of course, said to the trees, you know, in good faith, if you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Y'all ever tried to take shade behind a thorn bush? That's retarded. But anyway, that's what he did. Refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the the bramble and devour the seeds of Lebanon. Now, this is a weird story. I want to pause here for a second. He's actually talking about his older brothers here. He's saying, you know, you could have come and talked to my older brother who was like an olive tree, and he would have brought good pleasure to you. But instead, my older brothers, the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, they may have been good leaders, but they were too busy with their own stuff and their own abundance. He's sort of saying, you know, my brothers weren't great leaders either. That's really what he's saying. You guys shouldn't have chosen any of us to be your king. Just so you know, y'all made a big choice. But guess what you did do? You chose the worst of us. You chose the thorn bush who says, Hey, come get under my shade. What shade? Verse 16, Now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubabel and, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Let him re- re- also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out of them from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Bethlehem, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem Shechem and from Beth Meloh and devour Abimelech and Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. Okay, wow. Verse twenty-two. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. Three years this insanity went on. You know, God's justice comes. For whatever reason, though, it doesn't always come as swiftly as we may want. Three years, that's not a, that's not a short amount of time. But God's justice delayed. Verse 23, God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and felled. And, and held a festival. And, and they went into the house of their God, and ate, and they drank, and they reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Why would that this people were under my hand. and Then I would remove Abimelech. I would come to Abimelech, increase your army and come on out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech, secretly saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field." Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And we, when he and, and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all his men who were with him, they, they rose up by night and they set an ambush against Shechem in four companies and got all the son of Ebed, went out, stood at the entrance at the gate of the city, And Abimelech and the people who were with him, they arose from the ambush. This is hilarious. And when Gaal said to the people, and he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Really? Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Now go out and fight them. Gaul then went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem, and he fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him. And he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, And Zebul drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and he killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him, they rushed forward and stood at the entrance at the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. You know, if you salt the field, it kills everything. And it doesn't recover for a little while. I don't know what his overall plan was here. Hey, I'm the leader of Shechem. I'm going to kill everybody and ruin the fields. I guess he was just done with them. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to the Mount, excuse me, Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand. He cut, he cut down a bundle of brushwood. He took some bramble. And he took it up and he laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, Hey! What you've seen me do, hurry and do, do as I have done. And So every one of the men cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, he put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Goodness gracious. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and he encamped against Thebes. Now he's on a mission just to just scorch the earth. And he captured it, but there was also a strong tower within this city and all the men and the women and their leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in and they went up to the roof of the tower. Now, Abimelech's here thinking, all right, I've dealt with one of these towers before. I got a plan, man. I'm going to go burn that sucker down. Verse 52, Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire and... (laughs) I love this one. A certain woman, unnamed, just some lady threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Whoa. Then he called quickly to the young man his armor-bearer and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. I got news for you, Abimelech, wherever you are. I don't think you're up, but we know. We all all know. The word got out. You got hit in the head with a rock. My little girl. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Everybody went home. They're like, we're done. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. You survived. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. What do we have to learn here as we finish? This whole story is really still a story of Gideon. And here's the last warning sign. Living a life of ease over leaving a godly legacy. In the end, Gideon has, it seems, no regard for raising the next generation. He has no regard for instructing his many children in the way of the Lord. Instead, it says in the book very clearly that this place of worship, this false place of worship becomes a snare both to Gideon and to his children. So now we get Abimelech. Who is Abimelech then in this story? Some would say he is a judge, but you might call him an anti-judge. He, in fact, judges his own house. He is a judge on Gideon's house. He is also a judge on this fickle people who would choose a king, the worst person they could choose. He is a judge on them. And there's a few of these judges we're going to study that aren't necessarily rescuing Israel from outside forces. They're rescuing Israel from itself. And Abimelech has no mission like that. He is completely unaware that that's what he's accomplishing, but he has accomplished it. You know what God does? He ends the line of Gideon. There's only Jotham left, and we don't see him again. Abimelech is an anti-hero. He takes 70 pieces of silver, kills everybody, all of his family, all of his brothers, that is, on one stone. The irony of that story, it is with one stone that God takes him out. And it's like Abimelech at the end of his days is thinking, I've heard this story. Uh, the story's been going around of Deborah and this girl and this dude named Sesera. And I heard that some dude, like she, she, she drove a tent peg into the side of his head. I don't want people to remember me that way. This is twice that the Bible has decided, or that, that God and his, and his, his glorious plan has allowed these, these ladies to get lucky shots. The tent peg wasn't so lucky, boy. that was something. But this lady just grabs an upper millstone. This thing is it's probably 10 to 20 pounds. It's not light, and I don't know how high she drops it, but it ruins him. God's in play in all of this chapter in a way that no one expects... And this is such a terrifying thing, as a, as a believer, I should encourage you. But I think having a healthy fear is a good thing. A healthy fear in this. Everything I do in this life, like we're gonna look at Gideon and go, okay, this is amazing the faith he had, but the legacy, the story that is told after him, is terrible. And so that I could go my whole life, that I I could I could I could have a marriage, I could have children, I could do all these things, but then my kids would go on to do. Tremendously terrible things, and I wonder what people would remember of me. What people remember technically of Gideon is that Abimelech completely destroyed his line. That Gideon, for some reason, names his son, "My father is the king." Now, maybe, maybe he meant, "Well, my heavenly father," but I'm not so sure. It doesn't seem that way. You know, God, I want to just totally transition this to 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 you helping you think about the kind of legacy you're leaving. Because I don't know what else to do with chapter 9 other than to think of poor Gideon and the terrible ending and what that might mean for us. You know, God cares so much more about the infinite things than he does the finite things. There's, There's just so much that we do, we have to admit to this as believers, that is just finite stuff and we're instructing our children to follow in the finite. To make, make much of the golden shekels. Make, make much of the golden ephod. you know. But, but translate that. well. So make a whole lot out of all of these things that will be dust one day rather than take the time for the infinite. And Gideon, we don't see that at all in his story. His children do not follow the Lord at all. God cares so much more about your marriage. He cares so much more about how you raise children. He cares so much more about your legacy than stuff. Malachi 2, it says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and spirit? You are His. And what does He want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. We can remove idolatrous strongholds with the divine power of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Our nation, our culture, is facing, I would argue, maybe the greatest threat to to a godly legacy that exists. In fact, I would argue they even encourage it. And the reason I can say that is because the great problem facing our nation, and it's not true everywhere in the world, but it is in many places, the great threat is the broken home. We have a growing trend of divorce. A growing trend of fatherlessness. And the government basically subsidizes single parent homes. And actually makes it somewhat unbeneficial to stay together. It's weird. There ought to be overwhelming benefits to the parents who stay together and raise kids. But it's not so. This results primarily in fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. And I've talked many times before about this. You didn't think I'd be here in Judges chapter 9, I know, but here's Gideon not being a true father to his kids. And and this indicator results in, in massive increases of things like teen pregnancy, educational dropout, crime, lower numbers. I read this this week. I'd never heard this before. Did you know that children who grow up with fatherless homes have a lowered number of telomeres? You ever heard that term? That was new to me. Telomeres are these things that are basically like the tips of your shoe laces, those aglets, if you will, the the things that connect chromosomes together. Do you know if you begin to have a lowered amount of telomeres, it actually is an indicator of your lifespan, which means fatherlessness lowers the amount of time a child will live. Is that insane or what? That blows my mind. And it's a great epidemic. Actually, as we begin to study this and follow this, we're seeing that trend becoming true. The greatest thing you can do for your kids is be there. Is continue to be there. Even if you're shoddy at it sometimes. But I would argue this, church, beyond that, even in two-parent homes, we love to make secondary things primary. We love to do it. And I, I'm guilty of this too, so don't feel like I'm belittling you or I'm, I'm up above. We love to make finite things more important than infinite things. Get, get me when I say this. Education is important, but faith is forever. God, God doesn't base His affection on college degrees. He doesn't. He, he bases it on our relationship with Jesus. Look, sports are wonderful. They're good for the body. They're good for the mind. But the gospel restores the infinite soul. Christian parents, your kids are observing your priorities. They're watching you. Mommy cares a whole lot about my grades. You know, Daddy cares a whole lot about my swing. I don't know that either one of them care about my faith. And you know what I'm not sure of? I don't think they care about theirs. That's terrifying. Oh, I can teach my kid how to swing a bat, but can I teach him how to pray? Which is more important? I mean, we know the answer here, but what will you do with it tomorrow? Gideon totally ruins this. He ruins it. And so this is the story of the Bible so many times. Eli, great prophet. Sons, the worst. Samuel, great prophet. Sons, terrible. David, great king. Sons, pretty awful. One of them's okay for a little while and then totally botches it. This is the story of the Bible again and again and again. I don't want to fail here. You know what? I don't care if I'm ever successful as a pastor if my kids will follow Jesus. That's all I care about. And I think if I'll do that part right, I'll do this part better too. Because if I can learn how to best pastor my children, that hopefully will develop me as a pastor in, in general. And you're called to that too. I can't pastor your kids. I can't. Not like you can. Our teachers can't do it. This is an hour and a half on Sunday. They got a lot of other time. They're getting hours and hours in the public schools. Even in the private schools, church. You think you're fine? In the homeschool. Okay, well, I'll homeschool them. Am I teaching them how to pray? Am I, we used to call this catechism. We used to make it a priority. I'm going to teach. I'm going to disciple. Where do I begin to learn how to disciple others? It starts in my home. I learn how to disciple my sons and my daughters. There's no excuse for this, church. Make infinite more important than the finite. Just make that subtle shift in your brain so that tomorrow you think, okay, how can I show my kids that I'm praying? How can I show my children? How can I show my spouse that I care about faith? Because some of you are having these terrible, terrible times in your marriage. And part of the problem is your spouse cannot see that you actually walk with Christ at all. And it's terrifying to them. Or vice versa. Jesus is a way better husband. He's a way better spouse. i got to let him pour out through me. He is a way better father, a way better mother. Pour out through me. Let my kids observe my walk with you. Are you selfishly seeking comfort and ease? Or are you trusting God to help you leave a godly legacy? Not only in your own family, but in the world. You can do this now. Start tomorrow. I care more about the infinite than I do the finite. Yes, I've got to do this weird paperwork on my computer tomorrow. Some of you have jobs that you're like, I don't don't have a clue how this has anything to do with infinite. You have a job to do, sure. Find the infinite meaning in it. There's a coworker sitting next to you. That's infinite. There's there's people coming in that need help from you. You You work in the medical field. You work somewhere where the people need. Find the infinite and make the most of it. Do well with the finite. You're paid. <laughs> Work as unto the Lord, not as unto men. Like the Israelites, we come to God thinking we need Him to deliver us from some bad thing a lot. But Sometimes we need to deliver and we need deliverance from ourselves, from success, where we think we're strong. Deliver me there too, God. Following Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can seek the Lord. He is our great reward. We can love God. He is our provision. And we can depend on him to leave a godly legacy. Let's pray together now, church. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that first of all, you cared so much for us that you saved us from ourselves. The story of Judges again and again, Lord, points us to the the, the great judge, the perfect Savior, the one the people of Israel were longing for. You have come. You have restored us. You have paid the ultimate price. Everywhere where every, every hero of the faith up unto you, everywhere where they failed, you did not fail. E- everywhere where they couldn't be enough, you were more than enough. Christ Jesus, first of all, I'm so thankful for who you are to me and to us, your church. I'm so thankful that you died on the cross for our sake, that you took the penalty of our shame and our guilt and our sin upon yourself. You paid it. And I couldn't do it. There was nothing I could do with it. Your people, we were stuck in our brokenness and you paid. You paid in full. So thankful for you today, Lord Jesus. And I pray now for your people, your people who are sitting here. Help us. If we're in times of low right now, if this is a valley for some of your people sitting in these seats today, God, would you show up in a mighty way? Reveal to them that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there you are with me. I don't want to doubt that anymore, Lord. Would you show up in a mighty way as I walk through this difficult, terrible place where there's sickness, where there's death, where there's brokenness in my relationships, where there's hurting in my finances, where I'm struggling. You fill in the blank, my friend. God is there walking with you in the valley. Call out to him. Walk with him. But Lord, also, if I find myself today on a mountain looking over going, wow, this is great. Life is good. Even in those moments, Lord, help me to not depend on myself. Help me to not say to myself, even, even just in the way I act, oh, I am strong, oh, I'm good, I'm doing great. I'm, look how mighty, look how wonderful I am with my budget. Look how great my kids are. Look, Every piece of that, if you would break it down for just a moment, is a blessing from God. You didn't do it, and it could easily be snatched. God, walk with me in those times, too. Help me to not be like Gideon. I don't want to be like him at all. He showed great faith. I love that part. Help me to finish well. And in prosperity, I won't forget you. But I would walk all the closer. And Lord, above all of these things, would you do something in our church? Would you do something, please? Would you protect these people's children? Would you protect them? I pray for our teachers in the back right now, Lord. I pray that these children are soaking up the word of God. That they're receiving a great word. That they're learning about Christ Jesus, their Messiah, their Savior. And they're coming to an understanding of that. That you would save them in this church. That you would baptize them in this church. And that when they go home, they would observe parents who are living to the best of their ability, holy walking with Christ. That you would begin to fill our homes with prayer. You would begin to fill our homes with the study of your word, that your word would be on our lips as we speak to our wives, as we speak to our husbands, our children would hear it daily. God, do that. Remind us of it. Help it to be ever present on our minds. My house, my house is yours. I pray that over your people. Do in us what we cannot do. Speak mighty through us to our children. The terror of that is real. We cannot save them. Only you can. Help us to be a great witness. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.